0: Dear Grace Church, our sermon text today is so relevant to the times in which we live, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10. through 10. That is because death is all around us. This coronavirus seems to have transformed every news segment and every news outlet into an obituary section where we're constantly being force-fed statistics on death as a result of this virus or... This virus and its death rate being compared to the death rate of other causes of human mortality. Indeed, death is knocking at the front door of our world. But there's actually worse news than that, that many know nothing about. Or if they do, they care almost nothing about. That is, prior to the outbreak of this virus, we were all infected by a far worse virus, of which the death rate is worse than any other cause of death that has ever touched our planet. The sickness that we all possess is sin, and the mortality rate is 100%. But the Bible helps us to know how to walk by faith in the face of death. Indeed, that's our sermon title, Walking by Faith in the Face of Death. And the text is Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 1-10, through hear the word of the Lord. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Oh, Father, would you open to us the truth of this passage and by your Spirit apply it to our lives through the grace that Jesus paid for at Calvary. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we step back from today's sermon text just one step, we can see that it's intricately connected to what came before it and what follows it. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it begins with the word for, and in verse 11, the verse right after our text in verse 10, it continues with therefore. So we can see that our passage falls within uh, the, the continuation of a larger argument, but also within our text, there is Threaded throughout it clear connections. Take just a quick look at verses 1 through 10 if you have it in front of you. In verse 1, for we know. Verse 2, for indeed. Verse 4, for indeed. Verse 6, therefore. Verse 7, for we walk. Verse 9, therefore. Verse 10, for we must. Each of these phrases are intricately connected to the others and Following this passage, Paul continues that theme in verse 11, therefore, verse 16, therefore, verse 20, therefore. Well, as we look at today's passage, how it unfolds and connects to the portions before and after, and how it is interconnected within itself, there are actually two parts that this passage naturally breaks itself into. Verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 through 10. In verses 1 through 5, we could summarize that Paul is talking about longing for eternity, desiring eternity. And then in verses 6 to 10, he's talking about living faithfully in the here and now. So longing for eternity and living faithfully. Under the first point, there are three sections, verse 1, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 5. Let's deal with those. In those three parts under our big heading, longing for eternity. I get the word longing straight out of verse 2. Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. In this section, Paul uses a few different metaphors to talk about the contrast between the believer's earthly existence and our coming heavenly existence. So in our earthly existence, verse 1, we have what he calls an earthly tent. He also calls it our house in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he refers to that uh, earthly existence as being unclothed and mortal. But then when he refers to the heavenly existence, he takes the metaphors this way. Verse 1, we will receive a building from God rather than an earthly tent. And that is what he calls in verse 1, a house not made with hands. And in verse 3, instead of being unclothed, we'll be clothed. Well, the three parts in this first section, longing for eternity, as I mentioned, are verse 1, verses 2 through 4, and verse 5. In verse 1, we see that our longing for eternity comes from confidence in Christ. Well, let me just warn you, this is our longest subsection in the whole message. Verse 1, our longing for eternity comes from confidence in Christ. And the confidence that I'm referring to here comes from the word we know in verse 1. For we know. And obviously using the word for connects it to the previous passage, what had Paul just said at the end of chapter 4. Of course, those chapter divisions were not part of the original letter he wrote. He had just said that our afflictions are working for us. They are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And therefore, we should keep our focus, 4.18, on eternal things, not temporal. And here in verse 1, Paul continues his line of reasoning on focusing on the eternal by saying, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is a further reason to focus on, on eternal things, because once the temporal is torn down, including our own earthly life, this tent in which we dwell, we know that we have a building from God eternal in the heavens. This longing for eternity, I'm saying in our first subpoint, comes from confidence in Christ. Paul is saying that because of the gospel work of Christ, Death is now for the Christian like a midwife is for a mother at childbirth. Death is for us a bellboy. When the earthly tent of our body, when our earthly life is, quote, torn down, death is our concierge. Death is our door greeter, our usher, our servant that merely opens for us the portal through which believers will immediately pass into everlasting bliss in the presence of our Lord, the building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Now, while that is clear from verse one, the reason we need to do a little more digging is because while that is plain from the text, this passage has been the source of fierce interpretive challenges throughout the centuries. I'm not going to take you in to all the various ways that this passage have been interpreted, but uh, I'll just try to touch on them and show you where I land and why. But first, Charles Hodge said, There is, however, no little difficulty in determining the precise meaning of the figurative language here employed. So no little difficulty, a.k.a. It's really hard. And then Scott Haefman said the apparent simplicity of this text dissipates as soon as one realizes that the meaning of the contrast in 5 1 between what is earthly and what is eternal is by no means immediately clear. Hodge went on to say few passages in Paul's writing have awakened a deeper, more general interest. Because it treats the state of the soul after death, a subject about which every man feels the liveliest concern, not only for himself, but in behalf also of those who are dear to him. Well, here again, we have these words to work with. Verse one, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Well, what is clear from this passage? This much is clear. When you die, Your soul is not destroyed. This is true for every single person, believer and unbeliever alike. And this much is also clear for believers. As soon as we are absent from the body, we are immediately present with the Lord. That's expounded in verse eight and in other portions of this passage. So personally, I take this passage this way, that Paul is mainly referring to what's known as the intermediate state. Now, he's not only referring to that, and I'll get to that in a minute, but he is mainly referring to the intermediate state. I'll unpack that in a second. While, while he is clearly longing for the full and final revelation of Christ's gospel accomplishments. And that full revelation... That final revelation of everything Christ won and achieved in the gospel will be realized upon his return when believers are then receiving our resurrected body. So I see the text working something like this. When you die, you will be with the Lord, even though your body will still be in the grave. And although that existence is not nearly as desirable as our final glorified condition, when we will inhabit for eternity a resurrected body, glorified just like the body that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead, and we will receive that body upon his return, well, while uh, our human body's in the grave and we're with the Lord. That's not as desirable as that final glorified condition. It is nevertheless a far more preferable existence than living in this sin-torn world. So that's the way I think the passage works. You can live here in this world. You can live after death, before the return of Christ, with the Lord in glory, or third and finally, that resurrected state. So just to make sure that everybody's tracking with me, and more importantly, with the Apostle Paul and God, the Holy Spirit, and the many, many places in the Bible beyond this passage that teach what I've called the intermediate state. Let me tell you what, uh, in the simple terms I know how to put it, that means. It means that those who have died in Christ before us, so anybody who's died prior to today in Christ, and anybody who dies from today on before the return of Christ, let me say it in a, maybe a shocking way to get your attention. They are not in heaven. Now, that could be taken to mean what I do not mean and what the Bible does not mean. When I say they're not in heaven, they are in what scholars call the intermediate state, meaning they are not in their glorified, resurrected body as we will all finally be who are in Christ when he returns or what the Bible calls at his parousia, his second revelation. Now. Let me just step out of the theology for a minute and say the obvious. It's not nearly as sweet sounding when I officiate a funeral for some loved one. And I've done many, even done one during this uh, quarantine season. It's not nearly as sweet sounding when I officiate those funerals to say, uh, dearly beloved, so-and-so has left this life and is with Jesus in the intermediate state. But that's the teaching of the Bible. When our body is in the grave, we are immediately with him in glory, those of us who believe. But we are not in our full, final, resurrected, glorified condition. Those who have died in Christ are separated from their body, although they are present with the Lord. So our text tells us that those three locations are possible, if you will, on earth. In the intermediate state, after death until Jesus returns, or in our resurrected bodies, which is the condition we'll be in after his parousia, after he returns again. As Charles Hodge said, the simple idea here in this passage is that the soul, when it leaves its earthly tabernacle, will not be lost out there in immensity, nor driven away into a houseless or homelessness of condition, but will find a house and home in heaven. The soul of the believer does not cease to exist at death. We know that. It does not sink, though, into a state of unconsciousness either. It does not go into purgatory, but being made perfect in holiness, it does immediately pass into glory. As soon as it is absent from the body, our soul is present with the Lord. This is all that is revealed in this passage, and that is enough. That's hot. That's the way I take the present tense in verse 1. We have a building from God. It is present as soon as we die, as soon as our earthly tent is torn down. We have this existence with the Lord. To die now is to be experiencing verse 9, to be with the Lord. And this is consistent with what our Lord Jesus himself taught He said in Matthew 22, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus concluded in that verse, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what Jesus was saying in quoting Exodus 3, 6 in that verse, to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, Jesus was saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive because when God said that sentence, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for a long time, but he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which presupposes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living even though their body had died. And Jesus taught the same thing so many places. Luke 16, is another example when uh, the rich man and Lazarus both died, we're told that Lazarus was immediately carried into Abraham's bosom. That's an illustration for heaven. In Luke 22, Jesus on the cross said to the believing, dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise, another immediate absorption into the glory of Christ following death. and Like Abraham, in uh, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, every Christian is looking for that city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And, and Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5, we have that building, eternal in the heavens. So dear Christian, I want to say clearly, this is what you can and should expect. As soon as you depart from this life, you will be present with the Lord. And it's vitally important that we understand, as Paul's unpacking this in 2 Corinthians that we understand the ground reason that he is so confident. Why would he say, we know this, we have this? Well, we should know the same ground that Paul's standing on so that we can also confidently say, we know it. What is the ground? It's none other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not immediately with the Lord when we die, even before he returns and gives us a glorified body, that would mean that there is something deficient in Christ's atonement to bring us to God. As his blood cleanses us from all sin, Charles Hodge said, there is no process of expiation or purification to be endured or experienced by believers after they die. The only thing that would keep you from the Lord after you die, and even before you're finally glorified and reunited with your resurrected body, would be something that needed to be expiated or purified. So if nothing exists between you and him because Christ has already paid for it, then it is necessary that you are immediately in his presence. So we could say that in this passage, 2 Corinthians 5 1 to 10, Paul has cut the legs out from beneath the aberrant theologies that teach that anybody does not meet the Lord face to face immediately upon death, and that believers are not with him forevermore. This cuts the legs out from underneath Roman Catholicism's view of purgatory, that there's a holding place after death, prior to glory, that in some shape, form, or fashion, they would say, helps to cleanse people in preparation for heaven. No, such a view adds to Christ's work. But Paul is confident that his soul will immediately enter into glory upon death, even while his body remains in the grave, because, here it is, Jesus has fully won his redemption. We have this building. Jesus already built it. The perfection of Christ's work guarantees our glorification, including our final reunification with a glorified body upon what is known as, I mentioned earlier, Christ's parousia, Christ's appearing, his second coming. So our first consideration under point one, I told you it would be the longest, is that Paul's longing for eternity was derived from his confidence in Christ. But also beneath this first point, longing for Christ, look at verses two to four, and longing for Christ also comes from not only confidence in him, but desire for Him. Longing for Christ, verse 2 to 4, comes from desire for Christ. This gospel truth ought never be overlooked. It's the ultimate litmus test for our conversion. The Bible gives us lots of tests to examine our faith, but this is the ultimate. Do we desire the Jesus of the Bible? Look at these words in verse 2 groan. Longing. Look at those words in verse 4. Grown. Being burdened. Want. This is Paul's desire. This is why I'm referring to this subsection as the desire for Christ. These are all words of desire. The word groan that Paul uses here in verse 2 and 4 is used elsewhere by him in places like Romans 8.23. Where he says, and not only this, but... Also, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And look what he's groaning for. Look what he's longing for. Look what he's burdened for. It's in verse two, to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. It's in verse 3, not to be found naked. Verse 4, to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Obviously, Paul is referring to his life, which exists on the other side of death, that Jesus has won for him at Calvary. But there's more to it than just getting out of this lifetime. Paul is referring to the ultimate reward of Christ's gospel labors, being clothed with his resurrected body, when he will then not be found naked, when everything that is mortal will then be swallowed up by life. This is where Paul's looking, I believe, beyond the intermediate state to the final reward of the victory of Jesus when we're united with him in our glorified bodies with all the saints. Well, with the opening Word of verse 2 also being that Greek word for four, Paul is confirming what came earlier in verse 1. It's an additional reason that he knows his longing for eternity. He's not virtue signaling. He's not expressing a martyr complex like I want to die now because whatever reason. He, he's not saying, hey, everybody, I aspire for heaven more than I aspire for earth. And for that reason, I know that I'm a faithful Christ follower. He is saying that his present groaning and longing is based on what God has done in the gospel. So instead of his own subjective desires being the ground for his confidence that he's on his way to glory, I really, really, really want to go to heaven. That's not his ground. He is saying that because Christ's gospel guarantees such everlasting glory after death, he therefore longs, desires, for the full expression of the glory of Christ to be revealed in his life, and that is when all his people will be glorified with him. So the combination of these metaphors in verse 2 is striking. Paul speaks of putting on a house. We would expect him to put on a garment, but putting on our dwelling from heaven as though it were a garment, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That is like longing to put on our heavenly house. And these are protective words. Our clothes, in a sense, protect us. Our, our home, our shelter, in a sense, protects us. And Paul's saying, I want to be in that final condition of having the full protection of God, even from the capacity to sin and uh, the full security that comes from being clothed and, and that dwelling being put on me. So he's not an escapist. He's not saying, get me out of here because life is too hard. There's too much suffering, too much ridicule, pain, loss, death. At the end of verse 4, when he uses that word mortal, being swallowed up in victory, Paul is clearly drawing the Corinthians' minds back to what he had written to them in his previous letter of 1 Corinthians. He uses the same words in verse 4 that he used in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when he says, When this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted the victory of Christ to be fully manifested in his life. Put the other way, he didn't want anything that Jesus had paid for To be unrealized. In his own experience. That's how badly he wanted Christ glorified. Not just saved from hell. To live however he pleased. Not just go to heaven. So he'd get away from the. Pain and sorrow and. Hardships of this world. But mainly. So that Jesus would get the glory. That he deserved. And the reward for his suffering. We need to get this right. It's not. Life is hard, so let me die and get on to glory. It's rather what Hodge says. It was not death, quote, not annihilation, more than the exemption from his immense suffering, but rather it was to be raised to a higher state of existence in which all that was mortal, earthly, and corrupt about him should be absorbed into the life of God and for Paul to experience perfect holiness and blessedness. That's what he wanted in verses two to four. Believer, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that he receive the full reward of his sufferings. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands that he receive the full reward of his sufferings. And one day he will, and we should desire nothing less. His victory over the grave is going to be realized in us to the deepest degree when we are with Him forever in final glory in a resurrected, glorified body, just like He received upon His resurrection, when we live to do everything to the glory of God. That's Christ's reward. And He is so powerful, and He has purchased such an ocean of grace that he will forever clothe those whom the Father has has given him with glorified bodies. Dear ones, Paul is here speaking of what many of us have sung before. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Now listen to this verse. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. That's what Paul's talking about. He desired Christ, and he desired the fullness of the glory of Christ realized in his experience. So, his longing for heaven came first because he had confidence in Christ. Second, because he desired Christ. And then third, under our first point, longing for eternity... Verse 5, that came from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul knew that the ultimate design of the gospel was not going to be realized in this lifetime, no matter how godly he became and how much holiness was produced in him. On this side of eternity, he would never be fully glorified. And he knew that God had purposed to get glory for himself in showing off his almighty power to save sinners to the uttermost. Through Christ, Hebrews 7.25, through the victory of what Jesus has done and how wonderful he is. And so, more than Paul wanted the experience for himself of eternal bliss, now think about this. More than Paul wanted an experience for himself of eternal bliss, and more than he wanted that for other people, he wanted Christ to receive the reward of his sufferings. I'm saying that Paul is saying that he wanted glory primarily because being glorified would yield more glory unto Christ Jesus than Paul being sanctified on this side of eternity. Paul knows that God's getting glory in his life now, and we should know that too. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul wrote that verse, and that's the way he sought to live his life. Whether we live or die, we live unto Christ. He who died and rose again did so in order that we should not live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Paul wrote all those verses. And yes, he knew God was getting glory in his saints now in our sanctification. But there's a glory that belongs to Jesus that we will not reflect until we're glorified. And for that reason, Paul wanted glory. Do you? Do you have an appetite for Jesus to get maximum glory in your life? If so, that will be the main reason you want heaven. Paul knew that the future bodily glorification of all believers is an absolute certainty, and he had set his hope on that certainty in the midst of his life of suffering. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, as I referenced earlier in another verse, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Uh, That's the passage I read a moment ago. And that's where Paul extinguishes all semblance of any notion that his massive desire and longing and groaning for glory was something that he was just good at producing. This is not a self-concocted, holier-than-thou way of speaking. Far from virtue signaling. signaling. Paul is attributing, in verse 5, all the glory to God for filling him with this insatiable longing that would not be fully satisfied until he was glorified in the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose, that is, every mortal thing being swallowed up in victory, He who prepared us for this very purpose and gave to us the Holy Spirit as a pledge is God. God, verse 5, has purposed that our mortality be swallowed up in life. That's verse 4. Therefore, as a down payment, as a guarantee, as a pledge, as a deposit, as a sure, certain, fact that he will finish what he began. He gave us the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit as a pledge. And he's done that for every Christian. Upon your conversion, the Holy Spirit has regenerated your nature. He has given to you the gifts of faith and repentance. It was the Holy Spirit of God who at first Made you sensible to the manifold evil of your sin, opening your eyes, convicting you of the coming judgment of God. And it is this self same Spirit who also presented to you, held out to you, made evident to you the beauty of God's heart, how much He loves to rescue and redeem sinners and how he has provided for us in the gospel of Christ so that we could become, instead of the objects of his wrath, the objects of his love. It is the same Spirit who has shown to you these gospel beauties who upon your receiving of Christ's gospel love also indwells you, making you a child of God, empowering you to live for God's glory by showing you over and over again the beauty and brilliance of Christ What's more, the Holy Spirit, who is doing all these wonderful things in you, has done them and is continuing to do them, is also producing in you a longing for the fullest possible enjoyment of God in the age to come. Paul says in verse 5, The one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge. That pledge is a down payment, a deposit, a guarantee. It is the first fruits of something more to come. You are going to experience the fullness of God in full display for all eternity. God has purposed that. Charles Simeon writing about verse 5 where Paul's saying, God gets all the credit, God gets all the glory for all of my heavenly mindedness, for all of my desire for Jesus to be glorified in me. Simeon wrote so beautifully as he's known to do, man cannot work this in himself. This principal ingredient, which is a desire after the glory and felicity of heaven, no man can produce in his own soul. Man of himself has no conception of that blessedness nor any taste for the enjoyment of heaven, much less has he a view of it as will incline him to brave the most cruel death for the attainment of it. He who alone can work this in the soul of man is God. God alone enabled us to say, to me to live is Christ and he alone can enable us to say, To me also, it is gain to die. So the first is longing for eternity. That's verses 1 to 6. This is the work of God in the soul of a man who is united by faith to Christ. But between now and that blessed experience of glory, whether in the intermediate state, dying before the return of Christ and immediately united to God, until we're finally in that resurrected state where We're with him forever in our glorified bodies. Between now and then, Paul knows that we must live faithfully. That's verses 6 through 10. There are two parts to this portion verses 6 through 8, and then verses 9 and 10. Living faithfully. Although the believer's deepest groaning, longing, and burden, verses 2 through 4, produced by the Holy Spirit, verse 5, is to be with Christ in glory. It is God's will for us to remain faithful to him in this lifetime until he purposes to call us home. So in verses 6 through 10, we see two main things. First, we see in verses 6 to 8, living faithfully requires courage in Christ to face today. And then we see in verses 9 and 10, living faithfully requires that we live for the glory and pleasure of God at all times. Verses 6 through 8. Living faithfully requires courage in Christ to face today. You'll notice that verse 6 and 8 really form one sentence with verse 7 being a parenthesis in the middle. So if we were to raise verse 7 out for just a moment and read verses 6 through 8, squeezing them together, it would sound like this. Therefore, being always of good courage. And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 8, we are of good courage. And I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Well, the beginning of verse 6 has that participle being, that ing word, being of good courage. At the beginning of verse 6, it repeats again at the beginning of verse 8. We are of good courage. That's where I get the handle for this first sub-point under living faithfully. Living faithfully requires courage in Christ to face today. Many of us are familiar with that song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. And while that is true, that's not what Paul's teaching here in this text. He is teaching something closer to, Because Christ Lives, even though I long for heaven, I can face today. While that first section showed us that Paul wanted to be with Christ in glory, the second section, verses 6-10, to show us that he also understands that God's calling upon him is to live faithfully for the pleasure of God in the here and now. Yes, we can all say, if we are looking at this biblically, Philippians one twenty three, to depart this life and be with Christ is far much better. But here what Paul is saying is that because verse 5 is true, because God has his purposes at work in us and the Holy Spirit indwells us, Mm -hmm. therefore, he is confidently and courageously living for Christ today until Christ calls him home. The deposit of the Holy Spirit in his life is the power source necessary for faithfulness. And according to verse 6, notice that this is an ever-present reality In the believer's life, verse 6 says, always being of good courage. That is, in every circumstance, while suffering may abound or whatever else is going on, as we see in chapter 4, plenty of suffering. Even while our outer man is decaying and wasting away, chapter 4, even though we're a jar of clay, chapter 4, we are nevertheless, verse 6, chapter 5, always of good courage. Indeed, as we sing often at Grace Church, and rightfully so, this is the power of Christ in me. That while everything around me is giving way, while it seems that the whole world is crumbling beneath my feet, and there are all sorts of challenges and hardships in this lifetime, including especially hardships for faithfulness to Jesus, the power of Christ in me shows up in that I am Nevertheless, always of good courage. There is no more clear evidence of Christ's power at work in a believer than than when we are a living testimony of this courage. And what does that look like? It looks like verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's why the title of the sermon is Living by Faith in the Face of Death. We look at death and say, yes, come, you're my midwife, you're my butler, you're my bellboy, my doorman, you're opening for me a portal into everlasting bliss, and I long for that bliss, not just to escape the sin-torn world, not all its hardships, but especially so that Jesus will receive maximum glory in my life for what he accomplished in the gospel. But until then, verse 7, tattoo it on my soul, we walk by faith, not by sight. This is parallel to what Paul wrote in Romans 8, where he said in verse 24, "For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope; for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it." This is what it looks like to obey First Corinthians for us. Uh, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 4:18 and the passage prior, fixing our eyes on eternal, unseen things rather than temporal, seen things. This is precisely what we mean when we say on repeat that the chief application of the gospel in our lives as the people of God is looking unto Jesus. That's what walking by faith means with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. That is God's calling for us in the here and now. And when when our salvation is finally complete and we're with Him in glory, then we won't need faith. We won't need to walk by faith anymore. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Now remain these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's because faith and hope are going to dissolve like snow in front of the noonday sun. When we see Christ face to face, the very one that we had been beholding by faith, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the one that we had looked to by faith. When we had 2 Corinthians 5, 7, walked by faith. When we finally see Christ face to face, our faith will vaporize into sight. First John 3 will happen to us when he appears. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that's walking by faith, having this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Walking by faith looks like Colossians 3, 1-4. Having been raised up with Christ, what do we do? Keep seeking things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. That's fixing our eyes on him. That's walking by faith. We set our mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's walking by faith. And then the glorified state. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we'll be revealed with him in glory. Who? Those who live the kind of life that Colossians 3 is talking about in the verses before that. Do you want to know what such a Christ-centered focus will do to you? Walking by faith you want to know what it'll do to you? It'll do the same thing to you that it did to the Apostle Paul. It'll fix your desires. It'll reorient your wanter. It'll realign what you most prefer, what you long for. Your soul will start craving what what verse 8 calls the right preference. In the here and now, being of good courage, you will prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Do you see that if you squeeze that phrase in verse eight into its most reducible form without losing any of the meaning, you would get this phrase. We prefer the Lord. That's what walking by faith is your desires, not just your actions. It's what you want. It's what you prefer. It's what your ambitions are. Dear friends, you, become like that which you behold. So may God fix each of our gaze upon Christ. And then we'll be able to say, verse eight, we prefer him above everything else. That's why we sing, oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed, Then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. He's the one to whom we look. And the second and last part of verses 6 to 10 is not only living faithfully requiring courage in Christ to face today, but verses 9 and 10, living faithfully requires living for God's pleasure Every day. Verses 9 and 10. The way these last two verses work is that flowing from the previous statement, verse 8, preferring to be with the Lord, we now read of the ambition, verse 9, to please Him. That's where I get this final subpoint: Requiring living for the pleasure of God. That's how to live faithfully. That we live for the pleasure of God. Therefore, verse 9, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul here has switched the direction of his metaphor. Whereas home, in the preceding verses, referred to being in the body in this lifetime, verse 6. In verse 9, it refers to being with our God in glory. He is our real home, Psalm 90 Oh God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, from everlasting to everlasting. And we prefer him. And we have an ambition to please him. That's what living faithfully looks like. What's your ambition? Hodge says this word ambition means more than just our work. It signifies literally, quote, to love, to honor. To be ambitious. This is talking about ultimate things. Paramount, not tantamount. Nothing else is tied for first here. Our highest ambition, our deepest desire is to love, honor, and please our God. This one word, this one verse cuts to the heart of the controlling motive of our life. What do you want more than you want anything else? The Christian would answer without hesitation, without skipping a beat, without having to go to the prayer closet. The thing I want more than I want anything else is to please my God. We long to be a delight to our King by delighting in our King. We long to show that He Himself is our highest reward, our greatest treasure our ultimate joy. One commentator said, love to Him, the desire to please Him, and to be pleasing to Him, animates our hearts and governs our lives and even makes us suffer for His glory. In short, we have an ambition to partake now in what we will enjoy forever. That is delighting with God in God. And if we live for His pleasure now, we will have nothing to fear when the day of judgment comes, which is spoken of in verse 10. In fact, instead of recoiling from fear of judgment when we die and standing before the bar of Christ, it actually incentivizes our desire to join Him in glory. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Well, if we are living for God's pleasure, the day of judgment will only be an opportunity for great joy and rejoicing. Paul wants us to know that his commit his comments in this passage are not just chaff. He's not just blowing hot air. He's not just saying things that sound spiritually wise or impressive. He is not saying anything in this text that he would not repeat in the presence of Jesus himself on the day of judgment. Paul is pressing the Corinthians to realize that they too must stand before Christ, whose eyes are as fire and give an accounting for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. Then, in that moment, there will be no opportunity for any person to wear a disguise. There will be no mask. There will be no veil. We will not be able to deceive the judge of all the earth. Rather, Hebrews 4.13, everything will be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God with whom we must do. And to the degree that we will all personally stand before Jesus, verse 10, we will all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. To that same degree, if we believe that, to the degree that we believe that we will stand before him, to that same degree we will be compelled to live by his Spirit's power for his glory today. This judgment seat spoken of in verse 10 is the word Bema, It was used in Paul's day to refer to that raised platform on which the Roman magistrates would sit to adjudicate their standards of justice. The theme of Christ judging all men is replete in the scriptures. Paul has clearly laid down this truth in many places that all men will be judged and all men will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, believers and unbelievers will be judged on entirely different Merits. Those who do not believe will be judged on the basis of their own merit, and they will then be sentenced accordingly. The scripture soberingly teaches that nothing that any lost person has ever done is considered by God to be an act of true righteousness. There is none who does good, not even one, Romans 3.12. Genesis chapter 6 is still true. And will be true on the day of judgment for every unconverted person. Then the Lord saw, Genesis 6, 5, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Judgment is coming for the lost man. In the New Testament, we find the same principle. Colossians three twenty five. for he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. But, O oh, saints, don't be mistaken. For those who are in Christ, our judgment, yes, it is on its way too. On the final day, we will be brought before Christ's tribunal. We too will be called to give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. But did you notice the motivation in the heart of Christ for the judgment that will be rendered toward the saints? It's in verse 10. So that we may be recompensed for our deeds, paid, rewarded acknowledged. That's why we sing no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Those who have fled to Jesus for refuge in this lifetime will have an exhilarating rush of joy on Judgment Day that cannot possibly be expressed on this side of eternity. We will see with our eyes the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. We will see our Redeemer who suffered the agonies of hell for us on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Our faith will dissolve into sight at the revelation of his regal majesty and glory, our beloved, our friend, our king, our elder brother will dismount his throne to declare to the heavens a thunderous well done over the heads of his people. And he will invite us, Matthew 25, to enter into the joy of our master. O beloved, here is a treasury that Christ himself spoke of during his own ministry when he said to his people, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. On judgment day, they will be revealed. Our acts are treasures that are laid up for the future, Hodge said, treasures in heaven, and these we will receive back. Paul spoke of this recompensing ceremony in several places. First Corinthians, he told the church there in chapter 4, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. God will reward his people, recompense his people. Beloved, you cannot outgive God. You may want like Paul to be with him in glory now, but he has a purpose for you on this earth until he calls you home in every single act of love that you ever show toward Christ's name on this side of eternity, every act of serving, every prayer, every act of obedience to Jesus, every opportunity that you take advantage of to try to point others toward him, everything you ever do in his name, every cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus, anything in this lifetime that you have done for his glory will be heat back on top of your head a hundredfold in the age to come. You cannot outgive God. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the writer of Hebrews, uh, what he wanted them to know as well, that God's own character is on the line every single time you seek to please Him and serve Him and honor Him by serving others in His name. Hebrews says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered, and in still ministering to the saints. Why did God save you? So that you would have to fear standing before Him in judgment? The only thing you're going to be able to see in the midst of unimaginable glory is a smile that breaks from ear to ear on the face of your Savior. Because He knows that you're there because He paid your admittance fee. Why did he save you? He didn't save you so that you would tremble at the notion of having to stand before him with your knees knocking as he recounts your life story in front of the cosmos. He saved you to be kind to you. K-I-N-D. Ephesians chapter 2. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, so that, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, this judgment seat is going to have two very different effects. For the unbeliever, wrath without mercy. For the believer, Mercy without wrath. So I have a few applications. First, to everybody, the length or the brevity of our life is not ours to determine. Even if you want to leave this earth for some reasons of sorrow or despair, suffering, hardship, whatever it may be, even if you want to leave this earth, this passage calls us to relinquish our times into God's hand, and to trust Jesus. Even if your desires to leave this earth are good ones, to be with the Lord, as Paul expressed, we should leave ourselves in the hands of our sovereign God. God leaves us on this earth for a reason. At least to show His preserving and purifying power in our life, to keep us believing the gospel and moving toward Christ, And to utilize us in His service to others in sharing His gospel love with them. So, put your times in God's hands. Second, I want to give application to the believer and finally to the unbeliever. To you who believe, give God the glory for His design in the whole gospel for time and eternity until you are filled with an immense gratitude for the Lord Jesus Keep giving Him glory until your heart feels gratitude. And give Him glory for the whole gospel, for time and eternity, what Jesus has already paid to accomplish in the lives of His people. Second, in the midst of your suffering and hardship in this life, do verse 6, do verse 8, look to Christ and be of good courage always. That doesn't mean superficial. So even as verse 4 is happening, groaning, longing, burden, wanting, still ask God, the Holy Spirit, to give you courage to live for Christ today. Also, do verse 7. Walk by faith. The word is perapatao. Keep walking as you live your life. Walk it out all your days by faith, not by sight. That is looking to Christ. In addition to that application for believers, believe. You're not done believing. You too will soon be absorbed into the endless bliss and unimaginable glory with Christ your King. Your body will soon be glorified in the resurrection and nothing will impede then your maximum experience of God's own joy for all of eternity. Jesus will return one day soon. And he will reward those who have loved his appearing. First Timothy four eight. The crown of righteousness is not only for Paul, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So believe, believe that he will either glorify you on the other side of your death, or he will glorify you when Christ returns. Believe, and then finally, to the believer, repent, because we are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Turn from anything that you will have not have wanted to be a sorrow for you on that day. Anything that would be wood, hay, stubble, anything that would be burned up in the judgment, turn from anything that impedes your fellowship with Jesus in service to Him. Do not hold on to any sin for which your Savior died. Finally, to the unbeliever. This passage gives rise to the next passage. And in the very next verse, verse 11... We're told that because we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It actually says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Because we know every person's going to stand in judgment before Christ the King, we persuade men. So I leave you with this. Even if you don't believe what I have been saying, very soon you too will find yourself in the eternal state. So I beg you, turn to Christ now and live. Look. To Jesus, like those in Israel in the Old Testament who were saved from death because of the venom of the serpent's bite. And the way they were saved was by looking to this bronze serpent that was on Moses' staff. So you too can be saved from sin's curse and from eternal death and from the venom of sin in your life and its consequences in hell forever. You can be saved. Not if you do something spectacular, but if you will look to the Lord Jesus who was raised for your everlasting healing on the cross of Calvary where he died for you and was raised from the grave to prove that he can save you and bring you to glory forever. Dear brothers and sisters, good news. Come what may, this lifetime is as close to hell as any Christian will ever get. So let's live faithfully until we're absorbed into unimaginable glory father bless us to believe this passage in jesus name amen